You're listening to The Retail Perch with Sheikha Raman and Gary Hawkins. We're going to discuss industry challenges and opportunities in grocery retail, AI, current and upcoming trends, and so much more. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of The Retail Perch. And, you know, time's been flying, we've been traveling, and we've been attending in-person conferences, and we're finally back in the studio here recording another episode. And uh, Gary, it's been an interesting, fun last couple of weeks. Yes, it has. Yeah, I think we both uh, survived Las Vegas and uh, grocery shop and the NGA show and so on. So it was exciting to be with people again. Yeah, I know. And, and, you know, and I was pretty impressed with how they handled both the shows. I think the whole setup gave you some sense of security and feeling that that was pretty well handled. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think both organizations did a good job with you know, following safety protocols, et cetera, and, and everyone having some sense of, you know, uh, safety, security around it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so we're back in the studio here uh, with another amazing guest here on the Retail Perch. And today we're going to continue our, some of our discussions. I think this has probably been the most popular topic on our podcast, talking about wellness and food. And I think there's an increasing trend about being, uh, you know, viewing food as medicine and uh, I know our guest here has a lot to say about it. So anything you want to say, Gary, before I bring on our guest? To build on what you just mentioned, Shaker, I mean, you know, I, I think we've seen this growing convergence between food and the healthcare or health over the last, gosh, probably five plus years when this has really taken off, but then absolutely accelerated this whole thing over the past 18 months due to the pandemic, but large number of people now taking much more interest in their health and wellness, their immune systems, and so on, that directly ties back to what they eat. Yeah. So Victor Penev here, who's our guest on the retail person, he has an interesting background. He's, uh, you know, I'll let you share some of his details, but, you know, he comes from with an investment banking background all the way into food. And he's going to talk about some of his passion and what drove him in that direction. So Victor, welcome to the Retail Perch. Well, I'm glad to be here. Um, so uh, should I just dive in? Absolutely. Yeah, we'd love to hear about your background, your journey. How did you wind up where you are today? Yeah, I think the underlying theme of my uh, life since I came to the States, which is about 30 years ago, I'm from Bulgaria originally, and I came here for college in 1992. So it's almost 30 years. But ever since, it's been entrepreneurship. And I've, I've started four companies. My claim to fame is that I started and sold Bulgaria's largest internet company, co-founded it uh, back in dawn of internet in 1998. We sold it in 2008. And everything I've done has been a little bit of kind of an exploration of uh, add-ons. Uh, after college, I did do a couple years of investment banking to realize very soon that this is not for me and that I can do greater things in the world by um, starting businesses. Uh, that's when I started that, that internet company. I've done stints at various media companies, which was a passion of mine back in the day and still is essentially at the bottom of uh, kind of entrepreneur, uh, at the bottom of starting internet businesses. Uh, so I was at the, at the beginning of starting the BMG digital marketing business back in the day. Uh, we, we, we were inventing at the time email marketing. You can remember a time before email marketing existed, you know, there was such a time. And then uh, I, um, for, for a brief period of time, I, I ran Playboy's digital, international digital business, which was uh, an interesting exploration on its own. As life would have it, I went back home for, uh, to Bulgaria for a few years. Rent the company I started, we sold it, 
and then moved back to the States. And I took a year off and, and reflected on what I want to do. And one of the things that I've always been passionate about is food. I've been cooking, I think, for the last 30 years, almost every day. One day I realized that I'm thinking about five or six hours a day about food and, and might as well just combine my two passions of food and tack and see if we can do something meaningful in the world. And at the time, so that's about 10 years ago, the question was, what can we solve with technology? That's a big problem in food. And part of it was, well, let's, let's figure out how people are making choice about food. And it turns out that the information about food is very disorganized, contradictory, lacking, just not there when people need it. Um, and so, uh, and this is still the case, by the way, but we set up the, to organize um, the world's food knowledge so it can give it back to people so they can make the right food choices. And ultimately, and that's another passion of mine is health, to live long and healthy, healthy lives. We believe that people can live up to 120 without any chronic conditions, without a mental illness. And we know that food is going to be a big part of the solution alongside sleep, meditation, exercise, and so on. But food is a big part of the solution. So that's what the company has been doing, uh, organizing the world's food knowledge and setting up in a way that people can use it. And I can start getting into the company now or... Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so yeah. tell us about Edamam. What, what does Edamam do actually now? Yeah. So Edamam started somewhat naively as a kind of a B2C app, you know, we'll, we'll conquer the world. We, we provide everybody in the world mm-hmm. information about food and they'll love us and, and whatnot. But, you know, over time we realized, hey, there is no business model there. People do really expect data and information about food to be free. And at the same time, businesses started coming to us and say, well, you have this kind of very accurate deep data and can, can we use it? So we pivoted to a B2B place and uh, we realized that actually we're going to have a lot more impact this way. Uh, we meet the consumer where they make choices about food, whether it's a restaurant, dietitian office, grocery store, everywhere they can decide or are deciding what they should eat. And so we completely pivoted the technology towards B2B. And right now we are providing data as a service solutions to businesses in the food, health, and wellness sectors. And we really spend about 50 times in the food space and 50 times in the health and wellness. So we straddle that divide, so to speak, and we see how the two industries are starting to converge towards, um, towards one another. Um, and we work with really large companies like Nestle, Barilla, Tyson, um, on the food side are, are clients of ours. Uh, but also on the health side, Virta Health, Twin Health. Uh, we have very advanced conversations with Teladoc, Livongo, CVS, Aetna. And then some of the big tech companies like uh, Microsoft and Amazon are clients of ours, as well as, as, well as a lot of smaller companies. Uh, we offer the data by API or, or licensing it. And for the API, we have about 3,000, 3,500 3, subscribers every, every month. That come and some of them just um, show up and start building applications on top of our data. So I'm uh, very excited about that because, um, uh, you know, we are propagating good, high quality data to make the right food choices. All over the yeah, world. well, there's a lot to unpack there, Gary. So, so clearly, so when you say you're organizing the world's food knowledge, what exactly does that mean to... Yeah, it's a big lofty goal. And, and we started with a very small portion of it, which is the nutrition data. So right now, what we do is organizing data around foods. And, and we really think about meals. So there are foods you buy in the grocery store, the foods you buy in the green market, 
uh, foods you order in a restaurant when you sit down or, or delivery uh, and things that you cook at home. So for us, all those meals, we try to attach known nutrition data, macronutrients, micronutrients, allergen information, uh, appropriateness uh, for lifestyle diets, such as paleo, vegan, gluten-free, so on and so forth, and chronic conditions. So this is all known data. Uh, where we're going next is starting to do genotyping of foods. You know, once you do DNA sequencing, you know, given your gene expression, your genome, what are the right foods for you? Uh, we started doing a little bit of work with, um, uh, with academic partners of ours and some companies around microbiome typing of the food as well. Uh, we're looking to add flavor and texture profile to foods as well, just expanding the data. And ultimately, I think this is endless. You know, we, we can start talking about traceability, the provenance of food, blockchain technology of tracking it, and, and so on and so forth. And then there is so much more research to understand the, the pathways in which food as a medicine impacts the body, the biological pathways, uh, the gut-brain axis, how it in, impacts the mental health. So there's a lot more to be learned there in terms of the compounds in food. I mean, right now we deal with about 170 molecules, you know, proteins, carbs, fat, amino acids, fatty acids, so on and so forth. But there is over 26,000 molecules in food. And so we, uh, you know, interesting question would be, you know, what are the compounds in garlic that, that cure the common cold? You know, <laughs> we have to first understand that. It's got to be some primary chemical analysis of garlic to understand all the compounds in garlic and then figure out, okay, well, what are the molecules and how they, you know, <laughs> bind with, uh, with, with um, receptors in your body to essentially cure the common cold. So those are very interesting questions. So we see that as a 50 year project, you know, but um, constantly expanding, but right now it's the basis of nutrients, allergens, diets, uh, and trying to help people make choices around those parameters. Wow. So you're basically taking foods or meals and then breaking them down to these tags or attributes that people can then use in their individual applications to serve up in some consumer-friendly way at the end of the day. That's what and, and what you're saying is that the tags that you can add on to foods is going to keep increasing as we get more and more information about you know, food-body interactions. Right. Yeah. And how it, uh, and you're really talking about going beyond just that. You're saying, hey, we can actually suggest foods based on your specific genotype that work best with you. So you're talking about personalization at a level, uh, at a genetic level here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually, the, the dream is even bigger than that. It's personalization, not just based on who you are, but where you are uh, in, and when you are in, in the time of day. You know, we're looking at you know, technologies that are not that far away in the future. They are already existing where you can get real-time uh, biochemistry analysis of your blood and not just glucose, but you know, a bunch of biomarkers, which can be combined with things like smart toilets that can take real-time microbiome analysis and whatnot. And then we can say, okay, well, knowing what's in your blood right now and you know, what's in your microbiome and knowing what you had for breakfast and knowing your preferences about flavor and so on and so forth, it's 11 a.m., here is at noon for lunch, a few, you know, three different dishes in those three restaurants at this price that you can choose. That is kind of the vision, you know, a virtual nutritionist that is very low touch, no need to log in food, just be able to really kind of direct people 
and, and not just towards health, but also enjoyment, because a big part of the, the healthiness of food comes from its enjoyment. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was I was hoping you were saying going to say something about taste, but I feel Gary like I'm sitting in a Star Trek episode <laughs> where I'm asking the replicator to make me food, and it's saying, hey, "Okay, stick your finger here. I need to know exactly what you need right now." <laughs> yes, I'll I'll tell you exactly what you need right now, <laughs> or you're standing in front of the shelf in the grocery store, and this is what you should buy right now. Yeah, yeah. but this is fascinating stuff, Gary. I mean, this is you know, of course, we've talked about wellness and helping people, guiding people to smarter choices, but this is taking it to a whole new level. Yeah. So, so Victor, I'm curious on your team then, do you have, you know, nutritionists or, or dietitians? Because one of the things we've seen and, and seems to surface different retailers I talk to, uh, you know, when they start talking about this area, you know, each retailer, certainly the larger ones have their own dietitians or nutritionists on staff and so on. And everybody's got their own sort of special take on, you know, the nutritional profile of this food or that food and how it aligns to that, that health condition and so on. Do you encounter that much or do you find that people in, across the industry pretty readily accept your recommendations? Uh, I, I think, and not to sound wishy-washy, I think the answer is both. So to, to answer your first question, yes, we do have nutritionists and stuff and we use them as needed. Uh, the issue is not the actual underlying data that which we provide, but how it's interpreted. And that's where dietitians come. So if you're a dietitian in Kroger, you know, trying to provide uh, some kind of, a, um, you know, recommendation for people, you have a philosophy uh, what people should eat, and then you use the data that we we would provide to kind of shape up, you know, meal recommendations, suggestions for shopping, and and so on and so forth. So it's not to say that philosophies can be synchronized, and there is a you know one solution that fits all. I think there is a level of personalization. I think there is a lot more that dietitians and nutritionists need to learn in terms of how to provide foods because right now it's a lot it's very functional and, and and i come from a background where i cook a lot so for me taste and flavor and, and enjoyment of food are, are very important so that needs to be taken into into account as well and and so uh, i would say that people use us because of the breadth and depth of the data and its accuracy so even if you have like very fringe situations, you know, somebody with type 2 diabetes that has comorbidity of kidney disease and hypertension, and they cannot eat onions, and they're married to somebody that is has peanut allergies and so on and so forth, we can provide suggestions of what people should eat. Um, while, you know, a, an individual dietitian nutritionist usually doesn't have that scope of that. They, they work with 20, 30 meals that they know that are healthy. Yeah. Uh, you give them, you know, those those fringe requirements, they, they struggle. And so that that's we support to some extent the industry and everybody that's a dietitian nutritionist by providing them with, with data and tools to really quickly find the right meals. So we have a search engine on top of our data that allows you to do multi, you know very complex queries like the ones I described right now. Yeah. And we have ability to look up data. So a kind of long-winded answer, but hopefully. Hopefully I got to, to what you were asking. So, so I got a question, Victor. So when you say, you know, you're pulling to this data, what kind of verification is involved in that data so that people can trust what your system puts out? Yeah, so let's put it this way. It is as, as verifiable as what a nutritionist would do. So um, just, just to run people through the various options of how nutrition data comes into being. 
the most reliable way is you burn the food in a lab, you do chemical analysis, and then you realize also the nutrients, you know, calories, fat, protein, vitamin B, C, D. Um, so the gold standard is you do the same uh, analysis in three different labs at three different times, you cross triangulate and you come up with, with a solution. Now, needless to say, that's very expensive. You know, each individual burn is probably about thousand dollars. And so if you do it three times, that's three thousand dollars per food. And it makes sense if you're selling millions of, um, you know, individual items in the same food, like if you're Kraft Heinz or General Mills and whatnot, right. the data comes from there. Uh, the, uh, the USDA does something similar. And so the USDA database is based essentially on this kind of analysis. And we use USDA as the primary source of basic nutrient information, as well as nine other sources that are similar. You know, some of them are governments from different countries. Some of them are private data sets uh, and whatnot. The second level of providing nutrition information is really nutritionists. And nutritionists uh, have learned how to read a text uh, let's say a recipe or ingredient list and say, aha, uh -huh, here I see, you know, one cup of green peas and half an onion and whatnot. And they mean, they know what it means in terms of the quantity of the particular food. They, they actually call those databases of USDA and so on and so forth, and then kind of build a composite nutrient picture of the foods. And then there is the analysis of the actual cooking process. What happens when you, you know, fry something, how much oil gets absorbed? what does salt and pepper to taste mean? You know, so we solve for the same thing. So our level of accuracy is the same as a nutritionist. And we have been tested by clients against, you know, nutritionists with chemically analyzed recipes. And we know that we achieve human level accuracy as good as a 20, it's somebody with 20 years of experience. And then the last level of nutrition information is the one that most people actually unfortunately use is kind of the free data out there online, which is getting better over time and not to, you know, lots of companies have put in effort into that, but there is a lot of kind of free floating, not very accurate information that doesn't necessarily refer to um, chemically analyzed data and so on and so forth. So the reliability, uh, we are never claiming ourselves that we provide the most accurate data because we haven't done chemical analysis on 5 million recipes and 1 million foods, but we have used the underlying data and basically done the work of a nutritionist to analyze those 5 million recipes and a million foods and tag them along. So it is as accurate as it gets um, given the situation. Now, I hope that one day there will be a lab that can analyze foods very, very quickly and it will be very cheap. And then uh, it, it will become almost intuitive that, you know, when you order a meal in a restaurant before it, it comes to you, it goes through a scanner, which kind of tells you, you know, this is what's in the food. Yep. Uh, and by the way, beware, I know you have peanut allergies, but you know, somebody used a dish three meals ago and there's like traces of peanuts that are that content, you know, if you, if right. you want to, you know, return it. So what about that? That's, that's fascinating. Uh, so clearly you have a number of sources that you're pulling your data from in addition to nutritionists, which creates, which guarantees some kind of accuracy around the information you're providing. Yeah. What about, you know, I've heard this a lot and this is just a question you can choose to either could be a stupid one. You can choose not to answer it, but what about quality of ingredients? You know, we've heard a lot. I've heard a lot from people that I've spoken to about nutrition and say, you know, 
you know, people getting the right amount of nutrients is not really the problem in a lot of cases. In a lot of cases, it's the quality of ingredients they're actually putting in. Like somebody buying, uh, you know, I might be eating a kale salad, but if it's not an organic kale salad, it's different from eating because it's got pesticides and other stuff in it. So is there a way you think you can account for things like that? Yes and no. Uh, in, the, in the short term, I think no, because a lot of the meal recommendations we provide to people are related to generic food. So if you make it a cow salad, we'll say, you know, you get one bunch of kale and serve six people and whatnot. We don't have information of the actual kale that the person is buying. Are they buying organic kale? Are they buying non-organic kale? Which retailer? And then it gets even more complicated. Where was the kale grown? You know, <laughs> and what was the soil that it grew up in? When was it picked? And so on and so forth. So uh, that is to say that we are aware of it, of the problem, uh, and that it will be eventually solved and we're working towards solving it. But there is a lot of missing pieces that need to come together. So it's not a lack of technology. It's, it's a lack of making it cheap enough and integrated enough to be able to do full traceability. Uh, so some folks have done that. Uh, I think Sweet Green, if I'm not mistaken, uh, right. one, one of their competitors did the same thing yeah. with tomatoes. So they actually could see where the tomato was grown at what time and whatnot. And there's blockchain technology to actually track each individual yeah. food. I mean, you, theoretically, you can check, uh, you can track each individual grain of rice by, you know, using CRISPR technology to genetically modify every grain. And, and then you can, uh, if you want to go to that extent. But um, in, but it is it's not cheap, right? <laughs> you know, somebody's actually got to log the data, somebody's got to do the work, and then it's got to trace it. But ultimately, yes, I think if we're talking about health and longevity and food as medicine, that is absolutely of importance. I personally buy only organic food from the green from the farmers market, and I know the farmers, I know where they grow the food and whatnot. Uh, but I think this knowledge has to be available to everyone because it does make a difference. It's the level of micronutrients that you get in the food and that, that is becoming more and more prominent. We, we keep thinking about macronutrients and how important is the proportion of fat to protein to carbs. But in reality, the availability of uh, vitamins and minerals and, and polyphenols are very, very important for the gut microbiome health and your overall health. And so in the fruits and vegetables and, and animals that eat them that are, that are grown in a place with depleted soil, non-organic, they lack those micronutrients. And even worse, they probably have some uh, detrimental uh, molecules in, 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 that are in, in the food that, that probably impair your health. So eventually we want to get to that point. Uh, right now, we're too far away from it. Yeah. Well, and then, Sheikha, that brings to mind a related issue that I think we've heard is, you know, how's the food prepared, right? So, right. you know, I can have zucchini, for example, and, you know, if I uh, fry it, obviously it's got one nutritional profile. If I bake it, it's got a different profile, et cetera. Uh, how do you approach that? Yeah, so we have the very basic approach that a nutritionist would do. So we, we know what uh, what is the impact of uh, each cooking technique on each food. Um, and again, those are averaged out, you know, yep. we know if you, 
if you fry something, um, you know, how much oil gets absorbed, but if you braise something, how much oil, how much water gets added or subtracted if you bake it or, or, or things like that. And how specific nutrients might be impacted. Like if you do juicing, how much of the fiber gets removed and stuff like that. There's a lot more work to be done. There is primary research to be done there because we not, not everything is known. We, we don't know for every single, um, uh, plant or or even meat you know different techniques what is the impact now and that's on average like each individual piece obviously uh, will take in each individual cooking and temperature impact and the humidity in the room that you're cooking you know that it, it, it impacts the overall nutrition but i think directionally at least as a first level approximation we're providing some information now into you know how uh, how the food is impacted based on on cooking um there is a lot more to Done. And I, I put my faith there in smart technologies, Internet of Things that are in the home. So mm-hmm. smart ovens that can, you know, in real time track uh, the, the micronutrient change of, of the food while you're cooking it or pans. Um, and, and not that those don't exist. They're just, you know, not commercially viable as right. of yet. So, yeah, this, this is fascinating because I'm, I'm trying to see how does. Uh, how does, uh, let's say, uh, somebody who's trying to build an application on top of your services, what would be, just throw out, if you can, like a potential use case here? Yeah, yeah. So we serve uh, two, three primary use cases, um, and, and they roughly fall into different industries. So uh, in the food industry, uh, generally, it's providing nutrition data for something that people are uh, cooking, like recipes or ingredient lists of foods and so on and so forth. So they, this is the use case we saw for Barilla, you know, but we do we do have, you know, other use cases, you know, provide recipes for somebody that already has an idea of what they want, like Tyson, you know, around, around meats. Or McCormick uses us, uh, you know, to do a little bit of machine learning, I guess, on top of our data, you know, that's associated with their own data. But it is basically getting data around meals. And we, we power the nutrition for Food Network and New York Times Cooking and America's Test Kitchen and Chow Hound. So a lot of the big recipe sites use us to essentially provide the nutrition data for recipes. So that's one use case. The second use case, which happens to be in the health and wellness industry primarily, is personalized meal recommendations. And this is the example I ran before of kind of the fringe case of somebody that has a lot of restrictions and, you know, they're eating with somebody that has restrictions or they have just bought asparagus and they don't like onions and so on and so forth. So this is leveraging essentially our full database of 5 million recipes and million foods and the, and the search engine on top of it to be able to create in real time recommendations of what people should eat. Uh, so that's the second use case and, and health and wellness companies use it to provide dietary recommendations and meal planning for particular chronic conditions or wellness, um, you know, corporate wellness programs uses as well, like BSDI and FoodSmart. Um, so those are the platforms. So this is the second use case. And the third use case is the very straightforward nutrition data lookup. And a lot of the, you know, app developers that come and sign up for APIs are just wanting that. You know, they want to create maybe a food logging application and they want to be able to process a query like, oh, I had two eggs and a toast for breakfast. And so tell me what's the nutrition information in two eggs and a toast. And, and essentially that's that's what we, we do. We kind of go process. We know what it is. Something like a fitness pal. Is. Would do. Uh, oh, yeah, right, right. And, and there is 
obviously we would like to eventually get into the chatbot situation telehealth and say well what do you mean by two eggs are they fried or boiled you know because right. there's a difference in nutrition information right. and so on and so forth but but at the very least that's that's kind of so those are the three use cases uh, providing nutrition data for meals personalized meal recommendations and then just nutrition data lookup so so let's talk about your vision i know we talked about it briefly when we met at grocery shop and where you'd like to see i know you said you talked about you think that people can live a full life 120 years chronic free if they eat the right foods and have the information so how do you see uh what do you think are the pieces that have to come together to make that happen it can't just be information about food right it's there's so much marketing that seems to be misleading for people. You know, you have the pharma industry that's promoting a certain thing. I mean, it seems like there's a bunch of factors here that have to come together to make this happen, right? Yeah, so the, the answer is too prone. Like, so on the one hand is technologies and combining to provide a meaningful solution for people. And, and I mentioned a bunch of those technologies, anything from, you know, real-time blood chemistry and smart toilets to smart agriculture, uh, you know, being able to reduce the cost of food. So that, I, and I think this is a humongous uh, part of the solution, which we are not going to be involved with. But the reality, and as you probably guys know, um, most people buy food based on price and convenience. And health and wellness comes to be, you know, fifth or sixth consideration. Maybe that changed in the last couple of years, but it's still not in the top two. So the challenge is how do we make uh, healthy food that is cheaper and more convenient than a Big Mac? Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's the challenge. And there's a lot of technologies there. You know, there is regenerative agriculture, robots that seed, that irrigate, drones that deliver, which shortens the supply chain and so on and so forth. So lots of technology there, blockchain tracking for, you know, nutrient content for sure. So this is kind of on the supply of food, uh, on the demand of food, which is kind of the second problem. You know, how do we change the mentality, the behavior change? And that's one of the toughest nuts to crack. You know, so many people have tried, you know, I mean, there, there's Alcoholics Anonymous exists because people, you know, cannot get rid of, you know, stop drinking. And it's the same thing with food. If, you, if your body and your microbiome is used to the same foods that are not very good for you, it, it, it requires, you know, willpower for lack of a better word to, to, to change that. Well, it's not necessarily the case. I, I believe that you can create healthy, delicious food that helps people move but there's got to be an effort uh, on behalf of industry as a whole you know the way how um, you know government minus industry but tackled smoking right it was there was an education program it took 20 30 years to switch habits and i think with food is going to be the same thing there's going to be education program that's government subsidized and then companies have to start getting involved and i think the big companies that are ultimately going to make the difference are seeing where the wind is blowing and they're starting to change that and we all know about the initiatives within Nestle and Unilever and the big food companies to just move towards healthy food, you know, reduce sugar, um, move away from, you know, get clean labels and so on and so forth. So this is happening. The other thing that I think is going to be very helpful is that the healthcare industry is moving in that direction as well. Yeah. So uh, especially the pandemic accelerated that and, and it's driven by customer demand. But people said, well, look, my immune system is compromised. What can I do? And one of the first things is food. 
And so they started to get a lot more interested. And so now the healthcare companies are saying, well, we need to do prevention. It's not, you know, it's not just like healthcare. Let's let's just be health, you know. And and so food is an important element. So a lot of the companies we're talking now, um, either health plans uh, or corporate wellness programs, population health programs, they are all towards prevention. And so that's part of the changing of the mentality, right? It's the big companies that are the service providers are, are moving in that direction, uh, as well as pharma companies, you know, because even though they are selling drugs, you know, food is a drug in, in, in essence, that's what it's a medicine. Uh, and so alongside those drugs, you know, you want to complement uh, with food. And we, we talked to, for example, blood chemistry analysis companies, and they come to us and they say, well, look, our, our clients are telling us, stop selling us just supplements. You know, <laughs> that, was, that was what else we can eat in addition to, you know, vitamin D and vitamin K that you're that selling us, you know, what else can we eat? So I think the industry is changing, but it's going to take 20 or 30 years. And, it's, uh, and a lot of those pieces have to fall together and it's going to be a little bit messy. But at some point, the understanding that health and wellness depends on food is going to be part of part of the psyche of the society and i think these these things will, will change that so yeah and gary i think we've read plenty of reports would say that i think the grocery industry and supermarket industry have a huge role to play here because obviously that's where we go to buy yeah right foods yes and it looks like they're you know uniquely positioned to drive some of this messaging and this awareness and make some of these foods accessible uh, demystify the labeling process, make the process of selecting these foods easier, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that you, you're right on, and I didn't mention the grocery industry, obviously, that's, <laughs> that, that's why we're here. But yeah, they have a humongous impact that they can, and, and it's already happening. I mean, you know, the initiatives Kroger has and, and Walmart has, and I think especially retailers that have pharmacy and grocery in the same in the same space are going to make a big difference because um, as you know in some places in the us you can already get reimbursed for buying groceries you know as a as a medical bill and i think that if you can go to your pharmacy and in addition to your pills you get a prescription of a meal plan and then you go buy the groceries and you get reimbursed that's going to be huge so and so eventually that's going to Move. And, and it's also going to be in the way the the store layout works you know where, where what foods are you seeing you know where is the healthy food and so there's a lot that's been discussed around that but i think yeah, the, because, yeah, because, you know the impact of doing this is huge right victor i mean it's yeah. you know it's an impact on the economy it's an impact on productivity of people their overall well-being whether it's physical or mental i mean the impact is just uh Massive. And I think we keep talking about this, Gary, is that the, the supermarket industry and grocery industry is sitting squarely in the middle of people's lives. And they have such a huge role that they can play here. So if there's any retailers out there listening, I want you to pay close attention to what was, what was being said here. Yeah, no, th there's a huge opportunity for, for supermarkets and the grocery industry to, you know, provide education, provide guidance to relevant and beneficial products around the stores, suggest meal plans, recipes. No, massive opportunity here. Do you see the awareness changing generationally, Victor? I mean, oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll get to that. Let me just say that I, I see that uh, for the retail industry, for the grocery retail industry, what we what's interesting is that you actually are probably going to get market share from the healthcare industry 
And so and that's that's the biggest industry that there is, you know, 16% of GDP yeah. is there. Right. Um, so yeah, generationally, absolutely. We did actually a white paper a few years ago looking at the habits of Gen Zs. Uh, and Gen Z are actually putting food on top of their social priority lists, like even more than spending time on uh, Instagram or Discord or whatever it is, it's having food with friends is the most important social activity. And they place very, very big emphasis on the healthfulness of foods, you know, where it comes from, that it's prepared well, and also on its climate impact. So I think when they come into full economic power, things are going to shift very fast. I mean, their millennials are already moving that direction, but I got to kind of assimilate it in the machine. But I think the Gen Zs are going to move it because there's going to be a lot more dollars that are siphoned towards eating healthy. And you see it by the explosion of new product development in the in the food industry, you know, that, that is catering essentially to, to that. You know, it's like cleaner labels, healthier much better for you so yeah so true yesterday i got a text from my daughter who's a freshman in college and she said we should stop buying this brand of water and i said why she says oh because they add this this and this and the plastics that they source is not uh, in line with what i would support and so i'm finding that you know somebody who's 18 years old is has pretty hard st- I mean, when i was 18 years old i never cared about these things right <laughs> uh, it, it seems like the the, the availability well, of information and then just the overall social awareness that we all need to do something together to make something happen i mean it's very encouraging it's very exciting to see people having that kind of stance at that early in age yeah absolutely absolutely and it is it is encouraging and i'm very hopeful Wow. I mean, this is Gary, this has been a fantastic conversation. I mean, I, you know, I think most people listening to this episode are going to have to rewind and listen to it a couple of times to really grab everything that's been said here. I mean, Victor, this is incredibly rich. And I think I'd say even prophetic information, right? Because you're talking about things that can just not happen the next two to three years. You're talking about what should be happening in the next 20, 30 years for us to kind of turn the ship around. And I think it's, you know, it's definitely people should be listening to this very, very closely and then see what you can do, whether you're a, you're a startup in this space or you're a supermarket, you know, what can you do to bring that focus into your business and how can you help people with this? I think it's such a noble goal. So, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And, and what is very helpful is that all the technology is here already. It's yes. just a question of putting together to work. It's kind of like almost, you know, the iPhone before the iPhone existed. All the technology was there, but right. somebody had to put it together to actually make work. Uh, and, and it's, uh, you know, 20, 30, 50 years, uh, it doesn't matter. It's a question of working towards and, and getting it done. Well, uh, Victor, you know, time has flown by here, but uh, I'll tell you what, we'd love to get you back on here in a few months from now to talk about, you know, other exciting stuff that's been happening at Edamon. But I want to let you know in the meanwhile, that uh, if you do send us your mailing address, we'll send you a retail perch mug. So next time you can have some organic coffee with us on this call. We'll <laughs> be back on this, uh, on this podcast. Uh, any closing thoughts, Victor, of how people... Uh, you and- no, I think, thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Hopefully, uh, you know, what we discussed here lands on some willing ears of decision makers in the retail space, in the grocery retail space, and uh, accelerates change. So that's, that's all I hope for. Terrific. 
Gary, any closing yeah, thoughts? No, th this has been great. And, and to your earlier point, Shaker, I think there's a lot here to unpack. So I think we will find a lot of retailers, you know, food producers, manufacturers, tech startups, everybody wanting to really pay attention to this and, and probably listen to it a couple of times. Yeah. And Gary, we're moving up in the world. I don't know if you know that, but you know, the Retail Perch podcast is, has its own LinkedIn page now. Oh. Got our own little website. Congratulations. So we're moving <laughs> up here. So, you know, pretty soon, Gary, you're going to be showing charging appearance fees. So. <laughs> <laughs> so we're growing up yeah yeah well you know we've been uh, i think extremely fortunate by having some amazing yes. guests and of course victor is just adding a cherry on top of this podcast so victor thank you so much for your time i look forward to seeing you back here and and folks as usual if you guys have any questions for us to ask victor you know email us the retail perch at birdseye.com you can find us on our linkedin page you can certainly connect with us there and we look forward to speaking to you again. Again, thank you, Victor, and hope you have a wonderful week and a wonderful rest of the year. Make sure to join us every Monday and connect with us at The Retail Perch on Instagram and Facebook. And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at theretailperch at birdseye.com. Until next time, this is Shaker. And this is Gary, signing off. 